We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, OK, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello and welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Principle 18. Designs for action shall be put into practice in the knowledge and positive acceptance that feedback may result in their amendment. Okay, so I'm hearing two things here that we need to talk about. One is designs for action. And the other is the the process of amending them, or I guess the evolution of these designs as they actually engage Mm. with reality. Mm. And so we're talking about setting up systems rather than policies. Yeah. Yeah. And those systems would be, as we've talked before, cybernetic. And Mm. I was wondering if you could just say a bit about first and second order cybernetics. Yeah. So just to remind people from last week, designs for action, these are what people call, or previously, (laughs) decisions and policies. And actually, we were saying, no, 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 these are designs for action. And having got them into action, we then get feedback on how they're working or not working and which bits are and which bits aren't. So we can get into the sailing metaphor of, course correction so we can get to our destination. Cybernetics, the first order cybernetics, is about getting data, information, you know, navigation, readings, the stars, uh, the compass direction, time of day, etc, etc, etc. And in relation to government, that would be all sorts of data for example, in relation to the functioning of a school system or the functioning of trying to prevent overfishing. So that's first order cybernetics. The and that, data. that sounds like that's the data that you could imagine seeing on a, on a dashboard, as it were. And you'll find these dashboards, some cities have set them up and they're public. You can go in there and look as to how recycling is going or bin collection or schooling or whatever it might be at some level of detail. So you're getting data coming in. Of course, that data then feeds into a system that says, oh, we're off course here. We need to course correct and The point about cybernetics is those course corrections are made. So we don't just look at the data and go, ooh, uh, we do something about it. Which then really brings in second order cybernetics, which is the engagement of people around looking at that data, deliberating, discussing, absorbing, taking a view about that data. 
and then, if you like, themselves becoming part of the system because at the end of the day, they will be taking decisions about the course correction. So the second order is really the data and feedback that people are getting from each other, almost as a psychological question, you know, on their performance and on how they are performing as a group and whether it all works. Yes, and external observers as well. It's the conversation. Mm. It's the conversation that takes place around the numbers, the information, the data, that then is part of the overall control system. Right. So this is where, I mean, you say in the relevant chapter in the book, you talk about how this is actually tangibly almost running the country, that this is a way that rather than, and this brings us directly into the context for this particular principle, the question of what running the country entails at the moment, which I think a lot of people now appreciate is in many respects a kind of pantomime it's played out this sort of left-right punch and judy played out in the media Mm. and which in a sense kind of serves to conceal what we were talking about last week in terms of the sheer i mean the astounding amount of laws like i hadn't really grasped you often talked about abandonment programs for laws it was Mm. only really last week that i got my head around just how like a photocopier out of control it really (laughs) is it just spewing this sort of mindless, meaningless yeah. confusion and, and blockage that's yeah. just, you know, it, it's almost like a, it, it reminds me of a, of a Samuel Beckett play, you know, this sort of mindless nonsense coming out and it being produced essentially to pass the time. People within those systems, those processes, actually thinking the bureaucracy is the point and applying this particular rule about this particular piece of training thinking that's the point Mm. Uh, it's become so mindless that people have got absorbed in that thinking so the process is at the point rather than the objective the purpose the beneficial change right and then of course this directly relates to the general apathy and and lack of trust in government and we you know we've seen um boris johnson and matt hancock now slightly stabbing each other in the press recently yeah. previous and i think you had the same thing with theresa may but one point that you make that i think is really quite important is that they're trapped within a system of endemic underachievement and yeah. you know with in the case of, of labor you know under gordon brown I, it's uh, is it the roslings or somebody wrote a book about the um, the effect that, of labor yeah stein ringham uh, stein ringham so, sorry yes yeah, stein ringham yeah talking about with all the mandates and all the, the talent they had, they still mm. couldn't do anything. And yeah. you make the point that if we were uh, politicians, we'd fail in this system too. And I thought about this ineptitude and this sort of culture of kind of, I don't know what to call it, indifference and yeah, and underachievement. But I was listening to the to Gideon Rachman on the Financial Times podcast on the mm. Rachman Review. And he had... Dr. Fiona Hill, who's an advisor to, I think, Bush, Obama, and Trump on Russia, mm. Mm. and talking about how any effect, uh, nefarious effect of Russia on particularly America, but also, she said, you know, very much Britain as well, was much more down to ineptitude and infighting than it was to do, to do with the strength of Russia. You know, if, if Britain 
and America had their act together, there would be no threat from Russia. But it was striking to me that insofar as London has gained power as a place without rules to undermine the Bretton Woods agreement of the, after the Second World War, that this mm. you know, um, almost self-identity of a certain class of people in, you know, involved in the city as it being about not having any rules, doing whatever you want, creating this abstruse financialization. This has grown in parallel with the, firstly, the decline of um, the Soviet bloc, and secondly, the buying of, of British institutions by Russians. What Fiona Hill talks about is the creation of London as an instrument of power of Russia. Um, and, and I mean, it's interesting you, you set that out. So there we are. We had the Big Bang in 1988, you know, liberalisation of financial markets and all the rest of it. And it was a decision in their minds. We've done it. That's fine. Off you go. And I mean, I suppose over the years, there have been bits and pieces of, of what's called rear view mirror regulation. In other words, most regulators look behind them at what has happened. They never, ever look around them as to what is happening and look forward to anticipate. So we've had bits of rear view mirror regulation. But as a generality, there we are. We've got a decision. Off you go almost out of sight, out of mind, toss it over the wall, the city, the financial markets, all these terribly clever, sophisticated people, they're looking after all of that. There was no feedback on a systematic basis that was saying, oh, we seem to have had all these uh, Russian oligarchs getting involved in the London markets in various legal and perverse ways. What has been the impact? You know, do we need some course correction mm. here? And so, you know, the thing built up, built up. We had the financial crash. Again, an absence of feedback as to what was going on in those markets, which would have certainly spotted the ridiculous secondary markets in relation to subprime mortgages, because there were plenty of short sellers mm. who made an absolute fortune who'd spotted it. If the basis of this lending is people who can't afford the mortgages in the first place, and secondly, are never going to be able to afford to pay them back, and thirdly, the value of the properties on which they've been lent uh, are nowhere near the amount of lending. So that could have all been spotted, um, yes. but it wasn't. So, yeah, these cumulative effects, which sort of build up, build up, build up, Governments then unwilling, not least because they contain too little of the knowledge. I mean, this is back in a way to the tiny top. There's too little of the knowledge that you need in order to make those big changes. So, and, and actually have the confidence that comes from knowing how these things work and having the knowledge. This sort of brings us into two things that we do need to talk about. And one is the, uh, the whole question of failure analysis. But in particular, yeah. I think what you're driving at is the question of design authority. And it was striking to me when, when I was thinking about this particular area. And you have these proposed government interventions, which we typically talk about in the form of decisions, that, that these are decisions and something's going to happen. But of course, as we discussed last week, the decision happens and the whole thing is essentially forgotten. But mm. in the context of actually intending to bring about genuine improvement, that requires 
detailed planning of the of an architectural kind yeah and yeah. so what we're really talking about is design like this this is designing that we're yeah. talking about and yeah. yeah in particular because you can't know things in advance because of the deep complexity of governing mm. systems the map is not the territory you, you know whatever you think you're going to do yeah. almost certainly isn't going to bear yeah. up to contact with reality and so yeah. therefore, these designs will require updating just as we see with apps and computer programs and so many other things. And so yeah. it will take the form of an evolution. Yeah. And so therefore, because of the great number, I mean, again, the shocking amount, the 150 per week per uh, ministry is mm-hmm. just an astoundingly incomprehensible quantity of verbiage. Yeah. But because so many decisions need to be made, there need to be some kind of rails along which to travel. Mm. And this is where this question of design authorities seems to come in. That, yeah. that they, they benefit massively, as we've seen. You know, you've talked, well, let's talk again about Lloyd's and, and other design authorities. Yeah. And of course, Feedback is not necessarily a simple matter in that, you know, on the one hand, here's a law. Does it work? Doesn't it work? Yes, no, take a decision. And sometimes things are that clear cut. Well, just to rewind a little bit, should we just quickly get into what we're talking about with regards to a design authority? Like just quickly review the the history of what it is and then we can apply it to laws. I came across these because a friend from school is part of a design authority for offshore wind turbines. These things matter. They're producing loads of renewable electricity. But B, they're out at sea. They're immense structures. Hurricane force is increasing, for example. And you need to learn from the process of how they're designed. So in the 1700s, Lloyds of London, insurers, have got the challenge how to prevent ships sinking so often. And if you think about that, you've got ship owners, their designers, their builders, the distributors and the government have all got a shared interest in ships not sinking so yes. much. Yeah, yeah. Very clear incentive, limit payouts, as well as limiting deaths to make better ships. So what did they do? A process involved, and today you'll find these uh, standard setters working under the aegis of a thing like the International Organization for Standardization, which itself is under the aegis of the United Nations Economic and Social Council. So this is a thing that's got standing. And you've got industry, insurance specialists, university researchers, business specialists, and so on, who have formalized structures of technical committees, working groups, and certified verification agents who go out and actually check that the ships Mm. are being built properly to develop and apply design standards. Well, this is not a set piece thing because the world changes. They'll meet, I think it was on a quarterly basis, and they'll review what has happened. I mean, we can come on to failure inquiries separately in a minute. They'll learn from those. And in a spirit of improvement, no mm. one's trying to prove that you're wrong, you've cocked this up or anything, but in a collective spirit of learning from those, they will set new standards. Some of those standards will be 
absolute, right, mm. you know, you do this in terms of quality of materials, for example, some of those standards will be guidance. And so you'll find this in aircraft, ships, railways, wind turbines, oil and gas drilling, bushfires, flooding, and so on. Fields of engineering, principally, where yeah. these things yeah. are the automatic way, the standard way of making improvement and indeed saving lives, reducing cost and making sure, in this case, the ships don't sink. I mean, it's interesting, the operating principles that have emerged over the years, rigor in decision-making, failure being accepted and not ignored, reliability engineering as an essential tool, and specifying the conditions to be taken into account in design, and the consequences of failure determining the significance or weight of the standard. So, right. So let's bring that quickly before we get into the failure analysis. Let's just yeah. jump back into how this would work with regards to decisions of government. So, you know, you're sitting there and let's take schools or welfare, you know, reliability, safety, effectiveness, efficiency. Why is that as a process not used in schools mm. where we bring people together in a non-political setting, an open-minded setting, a concern to produce the most beneficial change. Why are we not doing that in schools? Frankly, I think we should be doing it in schools. Well, presumably this, this feeds into your, your global learning engine. You know, the, we've often talked about yeah. Finnish education, also Swiss education, you know, as being yeah. very highly performing. Clearly, there's a lot yeah. to learn there. Absolutely. But then, you know, the internet's arrived and I think all school systems worldwide have a lot to learn to take account of the fact that, you know, the world's knowledge is available on the internet. So you draw from all sorts of corners, wherever they may be, a good place to start, undoubtedly, uh, Finland. Um, but then you go beyond that because you're forward looking and you're looking around. But then also this fits into the whole question of the experimental elements. Because the designs for action are necessarily incomplete in their inception, there's that element of experimentation, which, as you've said before, you know, could, could occur at a relatively local level, you know, if the, if the power is devolved to the local level. And acknowledging that every policy is an experiment and every design for action is an experiment, to then say, well, okay, how are you going to incorporate that into schools and school learning? Um, well, let's have an experiment, mm. which of course will have to be context specific. So understanding the culture and the culture in relation to education may be sufficiently uniform across Britain that that doesn't matter. It will certainly differ between ethnic origin where you'll find in certain groups there's a much higher family emphasis on education. But then presumably this is where the element of kind of systematic standardization will occasionally lead to failure. And that would be when you might have a failure inquiry where the intentional side of, of, of the design for action would be looking at it saying, well, we thought this was going to work because it works in other places, but it hasn't worked here. So let's get into the question of failure analysis. Yeah, so, so it's another form of feedback. 
this came out of rail crashes. We may have mentioned this before. I can't remember. Well, I it, think we, we had a, a, an episode uh, about post-crash analysis, didn't we, at the end of the well, last series? Yeah, exactly. So there we are with rail crashes and, you know, oh, it's the driver's fault. And then, well, actually, quite a lot of people died. So, you know, should we have a, a more broad-ranging, less blame-inducing, find the guilty and see what we can do about this? And those failure inquiries are set up very much with the same ethos as design authorities. So we're not here to string someone up. We're here to learn. We're here to work out. We're here to do often the five whys to get behind. Mm. Yeah, the driver, the driver did forget to press the button, but he was exhausted and untrained. And, you know, don't, 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 don't. so why was he untrained? Well, you know, da 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 So you, you're getting into all of those things and then you are coming up with changes to, I mean, classically in relation to railways, it was um, the signalling was mm. often a problem. There's some very interesting books on that. Now, you sit there and you say, well, let's take the banking crash of 2008. Have, have we ever had a similar on the same basis, failure inquiry. Mm. Well, I mean, Take- that was a literal crash, wasn't it? So, or, it, it, sorry, it, it, it's a figurative it, crash, but I mean, it was still a, a crash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, child protection failures, deaths in custody. Um, Which always involve somebody being sort of blamed and, and pillaged yeah, yeah, the 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 um you know a, a the director of social services or or the the policeman you know who actually. Bang, uh, hit someone, you know, whatever it is. Um, you think about poor tax collection. Well, that's a failure. Mm. Think about uh, obviously failed projects. There's, a, there's a sort of an orientation here, isn't there? And it, it's, it kind of aligns with what we've been saying before about scientific theory. And again, I'm thinking of Karl Popper here. Yeah. This, you know, the, a scientific theory is always provisional. And you, you know it's scientific because it's falsifiable. And it, you can prove it wrong. If a test proves the thing wrong, then that's the end of the theory. And the end of that theory means the evolution of theory because then a, a, a better theory can be found by, by virtue of this new information. So these failure yeah. inquiries are, are really looking at finding a, a deeper perception of reality in order to have a better system. Well, exactly so. And, I mean, you stand back from government. And as you were saying earlier on, you know, these poor politicians, I know we all berate them, but they're stuck in this system. It's a sort of system of make-believe. I mean, anyone failing. And you stand back and you say, well, look, there are all these other mechanisms that we've been talking about here today. There are all these other means for producing beneficial change. Why on earth do we not just get on I mean, at least try them in some mm. areas. You know, I mean, let's have a failure inquiry into the response to the pandemic. And let's not be seeking to beat up the obvious suspects, but let's be seeking collectively to learn from this. Because I mean, this... there's a link, I think, between this sort of failure, you know, the, the failure inquiry is, is about root cause analysis. And to and, me, there seems to be an obvious link between getting past the first why, past, you know, into the fifth why, into the deepest yeah. cause yeah. and yeah. getting into the most important underlying 
purpose. The one is almost the yeah. inverse of the other. And yeah. so this question of fecklessness in government and lack of yeah. purpose seems obviously to be leading to you know responsibility being diffused and outsourced and that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and you're getting these ridiculous things where the government announces that, you know, the response to the union or the disunion, uh, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, England, is we're going to fly the union jack, I don't know, all over the place, um, you know, probably sort of put it on the back of toilet doors, I suppose, and, and yes. somehow or other that's going to do something. Or we respond to that we're having a tough time. So we announce the prospect of a tunnel from Scotland or Wales to Ireland, which, you know, is just hopelessly costly. You know, so what is our purpose in the world? Mm. So we respond to that with, you know, global Britain and buccaneering and uh, world-class apps and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's a challenge to Parliament. It's a challenge to everyone in the House of Commons, everyone in the House of Lords, everyone in the establishment. You know, why is government here? What are we trying to do with this system of governing? And being clear about that and, and clearing out this immense pile of junk, this pantomime. Yeah, I, I, I really feel I've got that point now. It's just almost, there's no word for, for how insane it is. It's, it's, um, but I suppose mm. as with so all these things, the, the, the truth is so much stranger than fiction. But I, I, yeah. I suppose another purpose is obviously we're talking about the biosphere as well, that, that there's this elephant in the room, this yeah. thing that everyone's consciously ignoring because it's just such a big yeah. thing to take on. And yet, clearly, I think one of the great hopes of systems thinking in general is the possibility of a very good life on the far side of the climate and biodiversity crises. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm sure you won't mind me saying this. My um, brother Will was up this week. And he's often said this before, and he's absolutely right. You know, we could all live in paradise. Mm. Yeah, it's not actually that difficult. We could all have these great lives, fulfilling lives, purposeful lives, if only we sorted this out. And obviously, in relation to the biosphere, as you say, people sort of, run scared from it but if we turned around and said we've certainly delayed and delayed but if now we actually make that collective decision and we get the will and we say right we're going to face this we're going to get on top of it we're going to manage uh, our way through all those things that we need to do then it's like oh great you know, we're starting to tackle this. Yes. We're starting, you know, certainly I think many people will be saying, yeah, good, okay, we're, we're, we're feeling better. Oh, by the way, sustaining our habitat, our lives, <laughs> aiming towards us all living in some kind of paradise, however we might uh, define that. Well, this is, um, I mean, this is something this that has come up in, in everything from Marxism to Islam to Christianity, you know, this idea of to, to every person a vineyard to every man a vineyard is the phrase in the i think in the old testament which yeah. is sort of you know a picture of everybody having enough i think yeah, exactly and, and i mean paradise is not languishing on a yacht 
as you say, I've got a vineyard and it's really great. Sufficient. Exactly, exactly. And Just to complete our thoughts about designs for mm. action, I wanted to quickly rehearse some of the purposes of feedback or the benefits, indeed, of having feedback in government, which, as we're framing it here, is having designs for action that will evolve. So we have these governmental decisions and initiatives that are bringing about actions and designs for action, and Mm. then feedback, as in being in contact with reality and not pretending it's not happening, will give us these four things that you list out. So one is to transform the performance of new governance systems. Mm. And then you've got to ensure high-quality connectivity to the biophysical world. So the more that we engage with and enjoy the biophysical world, clearly the better the feedback. To reconnect governments with people, as in civil society, and thus to contribute to the restoration of democracy as a lived experience and to a prevailing Mm. sense of empowerment. And if you think about those things that you've just listed, and I know I go on about feedback and the full separation of powers being fundamental to the whole change to the system, but... It really is that important that you are getting embedded into the system something on a continuous basis, which is saying, yeah, this is working, that's not working, we're changing course and so on and so forth. And of course, in many respects, that accountability and that responsiveness to that means that more things are happening that are of benefit to us. And it means that we, in terms of the feeling of democracy, as distinct from the rules and all the rest of it, the feeling of democracy, that governments are responding to our own reality. You know, trusting government goes through the roof. We're much happier. Things are working much better. The politicians can walk the streets mm. with their heads held high. Well, that's interesting. You know, I, I was thinking as we were rehearsing for this about a speed awareness course that I did. And the yeah. the guy stood up and he said, you um, asked people why they thought they were there. And they all said, basically, because I drove too fast. And yeah. uh, he then launched into his talk by saying, we don't know if this works. We have a problem right. that people are dying on the roads. We don't really know what to do about it. Right. But... We're trying this speed awareness course because we hope that people will understand what our predicament is. And Mm. everybody came away from that speed awareness course really buzzed up and saying, you know, rather than feeling like they'd been punished, you know, because they'd been offered this thing as an alternative to going to court, they Mm. were sort of buzzed up about their new appreciation of how it comes about that that there are signs Mm. and speed restrictions. Another point on this feeling of democracy and feedback, you made the point that we have this innate systemic orientation and you know that we're most connected to this when we're children that we kind of play and experiment Mm. and learn from the world you know this systems thinking isn't some sort of difficult thing that needs to be learned in some abstruse way it's just a case of connecting to who we really are you know my co-author ray makes the point very much about the system sensibility and we're all born with it Mm. and By and large, it sort of gets drummed out of us. Our parents are terribly busy, understandably, the school system particularly. So we're all born with it. And you can see, you talk to people 
and you get a piece of wisdom from someone working on some roadworks. So you mm. get a piece of systemic sensibility. So it's all there. So we need to rediscover it, but, mm. but also we need to name it and celebrate it rather than, I don't know, what's just come to mind is, is the average football commentary let's make it interesting well exactly let's, let's, let's be challenged i mean it's, i think we, we all yes. appreciate be, being challenged and i suppose an important uh, element of challenge that again we've seen in recent years in in politics is this question of our capacity as citizens to accept uncomfortable truths and there's a sort of a, a psychology of the rejection of uncomfortable facts that yeah. i think is worth talking about yes and, um, and actually that, that's where the the roslings come in oh yes um, who, yeah that's hans rosling up. and his son who do these great ted talks y- yes um, as well <laughs> yes but they've got this notion of factfulness which they define as the stress reducing habit of only carrying opinions for which you have strong supporting facts and the book um, is a, a, quite an easy read and well worth going through because it, it refers to all sorts of particular misperceptions from poverty to population and crime and seeks their correction. And to say, well, well, you know, actually, I mean, there was, there was quite a program, um, I'm trying to remember the guy, but he was saying, look, if you look at violence, we're now living in an age of the least violence for I know the last five hundred years at least uh, since modern times, I suppose. Right, but that's Stephen but, Pinker, I think, has, has been making that point. That's, about, that's yeah, the yeah. one, yeah. And they have various tools for becoming factful mm. rather than factless. They had, uh, yeah, and, they had a good list of psychological biases, didn't they? Interestingly, these all crop up in terms of financial investing. So here you are, people have got money. They want to invest. You know, you you are not looking to prove your identity, your politics or anything else. You're looking for these investments to give you a return. The seven psychological sins you must not commit in investing are loss aversion bias, hindsight bias, status quo bias, egocentric framing, vividness bias, curse of knowledge effect Hmm. and certainty bias and you know the advice i've said applies equally to investing in public policy and government action and to their news media reporting but you also make a point i think in that same section of the book about when one's self-integrity is affirmed in some other domain that people may be likely to respond or less likely to respond defensively if they you know yeah. if you're in general comfortable then you won't be reject rejecting uncomfortable facts where if you're in general uncomfortable and in a state of defensiveness then it's yeah. harder for the truth to to reach you absolutely and so what is it that is making people defensive well you know blame their lifestyle being attacked them you know them being you being me being criticized for you know something or other well it's just my life you, you, you made the point I'm actually positive. before which i think pertains to this about uh labor's relationship with smoking and their mm. their voter base in the north of england Do you want to just walk me through that one again 
This came home to me particularly strongly. I was on the train from Bangor to London and I think at Rill, where, you know, there's quite a concentration of lower income, indeed poor people. Guy gets on the train and sat there, gets off the train at London Euston. Um, He'd already got his fag ready, rolled and, you know, went outside, um, had a fag. And then actually what he was doing was getting back on the train and going back to Rill. So that was his day out. And I talked to him and, you know, basically here's a guy, he's poor, he may have had some mental issues, certainly looked that way. And one of his few pleasures is to smoke, you know, probably to smoke and to drink. And of course, smoking releases serotonin. But there we are, uh, he knows damn well that smoking will impair your health and potentially uh, shorten your life. But given the life he's got, he's made the decision that he's going to carry on smoking. There's Labour and, you know, often the, what's termed as the liberal left, sort of finger wagging, you know, you mustn't smoke, you mustn't smoke. This is a good thing because less people will die. Mm. And then, you know, we can all pat ourselves on the back and say, there we are, less people are dying. But, you know, it's a hell of an intrusion into this person's life. It's it's a hell of a presumption that you understand this person's life and the choices, the limited choices, the very limited choices that that person can make. And, yeah, I think the uh, anti-smoking war has gone on too far. So I think the point you're making is that this is this, you know, that Labour in this particular case has, in a sense, a natural voter base, they have succeeded in alienating by virtue of the fact that they don't really understand what their choices are, which I think has been a plague of of the left going back centuries, really. The educated middle class telling the less educated working class what what they want. Uh, yeah, when, um, how they should behave and what they should do, because we know best. Yes. And yeah, yeah. Uh, undoubtedly, we know best is not part of systems thinking. <laughs> it's completely uh, the opposite. But I think in the context of designs for action, a, a better way of approaching this, if I understand you correctly, would have been, well, we think that it's better for people not to smoke in engaging a campaign towards health, understanding people's limited choices and and their preferences as to what that makes their life better would have given them a clearer yeah. picture as to how to, to yeah. and may, maybe even change their purpose slightly. And particularly, I mean, obviously, you know, there's the economic system, mm. which is the prevailing neoliberal economic system, almost designed uh, to create greater inequality, designed actually to create poverty and poor lives. The chances are this particular guy was failed by an education system which failed to give him the skills, vocational skills, which meant he could have got an okay job. What else in his life? I don't know, relationship skills, parenting skills, housing, you know, what's his housing like? What's the support now for him having experienced all of this courtesy of the state and the economic system? Um, You you know, what what support is now being given to him? Not surprising that, I mean, as uh, colleague Fred Harrison puts it in his book, We Are Rent, that these sorts of pressures 
will animate prejudices which could include racism yes and there you are you're not only being not factful you also may be exhibiting prejudices as well well you know sort of where else are you going to go yeah Um, because this is all in terms of root cause the root cause is this assumption of knowledge you know this of telling people what they think as it were yeah which you yeah. know is is essentially unhelpful. I think we we've done particularly badly on time today, um, <laughs> so, which is great, which is a good sign. Um, I but I think on that note, let's have a think about next week and right. where we're going yeah. with Sorry. principle number nineteen. Is this still? I think it's still within the government yes. umbrella. Yes, so we, we're we're still talking about government as distinct from the the overall system. Getting back to number sixteen, which is purpose, which is uh, produce beneficial change. Number nineteen, then beneficial change most often results from working with the affected population through the medium of systems thinking and practice step. And I guess that's what we've just been talking about. Great, great. What a convenient segue. Okay, well, that's that's us. Um, Good. Thanks, Ed. See you, see you next well, week. Yeah, thanks very much, Philip. See you.